from 88.7 FM WXDU Durham and available via podcast on the World Wide Web. This is Shooting the Bull, your weekly survey of what's happening in the Bull City, brought to you by the voices of the Durham blogosphere. The opinions expressed on this program belong to the individuals expressing them and do not necessarily reflect those of WXDU or Duke University. Good evening, folks. I'm Kevin Davis with BullCityRising.com. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at dependablereaction.blogspot.com. Welcome to Shooting the Bull for Thursday, April 2nd, 2009. New month. New month. And Same old rain. Indeed. The rain has not stopped. It was a perfect time to uh, choose to pull the aluminum siding and gutters off my house for rehabbing it. You know, no time like the, the rainy season, but we'll, we'll survive. I'm hoping to build a deck. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days it'll all dry up. I, I, I hope so. My rain garden is certainly uh, is certainly appreciating it, and uh, all the water that's running through my backyard is uh, at least it's it's there as opposed to the way it was two years ago. Just make sure, Barry, as you're building all this stuff, that you know you stay in line with the codes. You wouldn't want to be getting a code violation or some other penalty. Now, I mean, the city would just be coming and taking that well, right out of your pocket because I'm a homeowner. Right, exactly. Hey. So, so I'm I'm actually looking. I, I had somebody in to uh, quote me some uh, some prices for some stuff, and it came out to uh, one point two million dollars. So I'm wondering, Kevin, do you know where I might find? Oh, 1. This, 2 million the city dollars? the city totally has that in their back pocket. I I, I think they're trying to collect that somewhere. Uh, what what Barry and I are referencing, if you haven't heard, uh, the the muffled cries you're hearing from friends who are reading the Herald Sun or reading local blogs uh, this week has been this uh, rather disturbing news that's come out that the city is $1.2 million in arrears on their collections for two of our favorite things, which are code violations for landlords and uh, the uh, amount that landlords owe to pay for the demolition of houses that have fallen into disrepair. And, Barry, this one took on an interesting light. Yeah, there's a couple sides of this story, right? Because one of the sides is that the city has been catching up on lots of accounts. So one of the arguments is the city has been so bad at collecting money owed for fire inspections and owed for solid waste for so many years that they got to those first and are only now coming around have, to this have topic. Have we caught up with the water bills? We may just be caught up with the water, but well, from the from the squeals of pain from many homeowners who've complained about the tiered rates. I was we thinking think of some, some rather um, large um, um, corporate or oh, nonprofit users of, of water, not uh, not just not just homeowners. But that's another story for uh, for for another time. So landlords have been committing code violations. They've been cited by the um, by the particular department in the city which I believe is going to be the neighborhood improvement services if um, uh, Barry if it's a case of, of odd practices and crazy wacky bureaucracy it's got to be NIS or parks and Rec so 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 the fines have been levied the landlords have basically said I'll pay it when uh, when I can I'll get around to it kind of like like tarp money and the city has said fine with us. It has not been a priority for collection. But, and, and the reason for that is? Well, the reason for that is, you know, I, I think as taxpayers, Barry, of the city of Durham, we ought to be really proud of the city. They didn't want to spend the time collecting this money because all this money would go to the Durham Public Schools. And I don't know what this Durham Public Schools is, but it can't be related in any way to the city of Durham. I mean, why should we raise money for schools in a place called Durham when we live in Durham? My mouth is moving and nothing's coming out. <laughs> that is that is the amazingly frustrating thing about this. And again, the argument goes that okay, let's collect funds. Uh, let's the, the priority was on collecting funds that the city could actually spend to close budget gaps. But on the flip side, we're talking about the schools having multi-million dollar budget gaps as well. It's it's this parochialism between that happens between the county and the schools, the city and the county. Now the city and the schools. And in fact, this came to light, Barry, in a discussion about the fact that. 
the Parks and Rec has to feels like it has to build more athletic facilities because the schools won't let the city use the fields for recreation. So part of this thought is, well, gee, Durham Public Schools, we'll give you the $1.2 million that we should have been collecting for you if you'll let us use the playgrounds that common sense would say let us use in the beginning. Let's be friends. This right. is why city-county merger always comes up, is, is things like this, Barry. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what I usually do on my blog, and that is uh, I'm going to personalize this issue right now. I actually had an NIS inspector um, over at my house um, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. Um, as it turns out, um, there's a rental property that borders my backyard. Our, our backyards are, 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 are shared. We share, we share a fence. And the tenant there has been dumping tires and other things over over the fence. And we had uh, we had NIS come out about a month ago. They wrote him up, you know, wrote a citation, uh, a notice of violation, sent it to the property manager. Property manager responded and said, I've taken care of this. So the NIS inspector came out on Tuesday and took photographs showing that the problem has not, in fact, been taken care of. So I'm really hoping, as a result of the publicity that this is getting, that the property manager and the landlord are now actually going to see a citation and a request to pay up the money that they owe to have I mean the inspectors come out twice right um, for 45 minutes to an hour each time that costs the city money and this is not a new problem I still have a 30 gallon bag of trash that I picked up from a tenant 18 months ago where I talked to the property manager about it. So hopefully this will be taken care of. And, and you know, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who is experiencing problems like this. Barry, one of the things I would love to do, time permitting, and, you know, for, for us volunteer bloggers, it's, it's hard to find time for these things, but I would love to get from public records from the city which landlords owe how much money. It would be fascinating to see if you've got people who are deeply in arrears. Uh, it, it'd be great to go, you know, call them on the phone, drop by their house, drop by the country club, and just say... Hey, you know, we're here to collect on the forty thousand dollars you owe. That would be uh, that. That would be a worthwhile project, and uh, who knows? Who knows who's going to have time to uh, to do that? If, in, anyone, in, if anyone out there would us. like to do that, it's an easy public uh, records request to file. Drop us an email at uh, shootingthebull at gmail dot com, and we'll uh, we'll hook you up with the tools that you need to be uh, to be an investigative blogger, as as it were. It's, it's not did, all just um, hitting the sidewalks, Barry, and walking sidewalks. You you have to file records requests sometimes. I'm learning how to do that. I actually have one. I actually have one that I'm that I'm working on um, right now. But that's a, a completely different story. Um, you know, a public meeting that I went to um, earlier this week. If you recall, uh, last week we talked about a dog attack that happened on the Greenway um, in between Trinity Park and Duke Park neighborhoods. And this past Tuesday was the uh, monthly meeting of the Animal Control Advisory Board. And I attended that, and it's the first time I've been to uh, one of these meetings. Um, that board is chaired by uh, uh, Amanda Arrington, who was our guest back in November, um, who is uh, founding uh, a director of the Coalition to Unchain Dogs. And, uh, you know, a very, very concerned uh, animal activist and uh, someone who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Um, one of the things that I noticed at this meeting was uh, a, almost a total focus on the 911 response to the phone calls that were, um, you know, made to the uh, emergency number um, during the during the dog attack, and clearly there's uh, a, a protocol problem. You know, Jim Sukup at uh, the, the director of 911 services says that his people followed their directions entirely, and you know, I see no reason to to doubt um, Jim's uh, understanding of the situation. But what you have in Durham County um, is between the hours of 5 p.m. And 8 a.m., one animal control officer on duty for the entire county. 
This um, the first 911 call was placed according to uh, um, to emergency center records at 6:22 p.m. Mm. According to um, Cindy Bailey, her animal control officer at six o'clock or six twenty um, was engaged in saving somebody who was being threatened and attacked by two dogs in another part of the city. So the animal control officer could not respond immediately, but there was no effort to call the police because it's not in the protocol. So clearly that's something that needs to be resolved. And, and I, I'm not sure I would hold my, my breath for that one. I mean, given the guidance from the county commissioners earlier this, this spring, that things like open space preservation and uh, animal services and the animal shelter would be lower priorities than services for humans, like uh, for the homeless and the like, which is an understandable uh, reaction. It's it's going to be tough getting more money in that. Well, I, 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 I don't think that was the suggestion. I think what, um, what, what the suggestion is going to be coming from the Animal Control Advisory Board is that the police respond. Um, in cases like this, and that the 911 protocols be changed to bring the police into the loop sooner rather than later, and that's not a bad idea. But that's not that's not the extent of uh, of the problems that need to be solved. A lot of people are talking about irresponsible pet owners, and I think that this is an opportunity, given that uh, we have an irresponsible pet owner, we, we have demonstrated what the effects of an irresponsible pet owner can be. We are fortunate in that. The only casualty of this attack was was a dog. Yeah, um, it could easily have been uh, a person or more than one person who could have been injured or or, or mauled, and you know now now because that happened in Raleigh, mm -hmm. um, there was a eleven year old year old boy who was attacked by two dogs and um, you know forty fifty dog bites and and that could have happened here. Yeah. But and, and, that, and that is the, that is the shame that that for whatever purpose and I agree with you that this needs an animal control response as well, but. The fact that, that you had a uh, 911 dispatcher who hears, gee, there's a small boy here with their dog being threatened by pit bulls. Maybe I should send one of the people out with a gun and someone who's a law enforcement officer to take care of this, this boy. I mean, it's, it really it, it makes you concerned about the response. There, uh, and, and I will say this. There is some concern in the animal, um, on, in the animal control uh, community that bringing the police in too soon will lead to innocent pets being shot because the police will respond um, you know with with that you know will send somebody with a gun to deal with the situation and 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 that concern was specifically expressed during the animal control advisory um, board meeting now whether you agree with that or not is you know is 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 your own personal feeling but that is a concern that um, that the folks who do this for a living have well you know you you can have two responders but but you know if you had a a child or any human in in jeopardy in this case i say make sure you get someone out there who can respond to the situation that's that 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 is my feeling as well but i'm not you know i'm not a member of that uh, of that advisory board or, or or group so um we've been talking about a couple of a uh, couple of issues that have uh, come up uh in in the past week or two we're um uh, i'm i'm Barry Reagan i'm Kevin Davis and you're listening to shooting the bull on WXDU 88.7 FM Durham uh, our guest tonight is uh, is a gentleman I met uh, um, a month or so ago. Um, Dan Duffy is the um, is the editor and publisher of the Vietnam Literature Project, which is based out of Hillsboro, North Carolina, and it's a, um, a fascinating website, Vietnam Lit. Org. Fascinating topic, and you know, after we talked a couple of times, I, I realized that. I just needed to, to have Dan as a as a guest on Shooting the Bull. So Dan, I want to uh, want to bring you up to the microphone and, and and say hi. Hey, welcome, Dan. It's it's great to have you here. It's lovely of you to ask me. Tell us a little bit about the uh, about the Vietnam Literature Project. Well, um, our first 
project was to uh, make an online uh, reference to Vietnamese literature, and we've got that up. It's called Wiki Viet Lit, and we have about 300 articles about different Vietnamese authors and works up. Um, the reason we have our own wiki is that uh, Wikipedia, which is wonderful, which I use every day, um, doesn't use subject area experts and doesn't ref, uh, doesn't work from foreign language texts. Everything on Wikipedia has to be written by a non-expert using English language texts, and that's difficult when you're trying to bring Vietnamese literature into the United States. So we have our own wiki, um, and we're very happy with it. It'll keep growing, but at this point, with about 300 articles, um, it covers most things that most people would want to know. Uh, our second project is to get uh, a representative sampling of Vietnamese literature. What we'd like is, again, two, three hundred uh, translations, teachable excerpts from the full range of the national literature, uh, from the literature in Vietnamese, but also from the literature in French and Chinese, and and the things that the Vietnamese Americans have been writing, writing in English. Um, and uh, Barry's looked at a couple of the authors. We've got about five up so far. When we've got that whole body of work up, we want to start uh, training and certifying people, uh, non-experts, who for some reason want to teach different works of Vietnamese literature. We'd like to get them in touch with um, people who really know the field and with the authors themselves. Um, working with the university to uh, give them some kind of a coherent education in, in, in what somebody who doesn't speak Vietnamese can know about Vietnamese literature. So what, what, what was your inspiration for, for, taking, for taking this project on? This doesn't seem like, you know, your, your run-of-the-mill, um, oh, oh I, I read this guy when I was a kid and I want to know everything about him. Um, kind of project, um, you know. Tell, tell me, tell me what your introduction to to the literature of Vietnam is. Oh, um, it was one thing after another. I, I was born in 1960, and of course, uh, through my childhood, the um, war over there, which was part of the, the Cold War against the Soviet Union, uh, was you know, it was just what was going on. It was what people were talking about, um, and. Then, uh, when I was about 12, uh, we signed a peace agreement with the Hanoi government in Paris, uh, 1972. And, well, it seemed to me, and it seemed to a lot, a lot of people, that everyone just sort of stopped talking about Vietnam in the United States for about 15 years. And I think that it was the people stopping talking about it as much as the, uh, in, you know, the, uh, it being everywhere when I was younger that, that really sparked my interest. Um, after I got out of college, I started a press with a friend, um, and we were publishing actually not Vietnamese literature, but uh, literature from the American veterans. This was Vietnam generation, um, and there were a whole lot of veterans who who thought who we thought uh, were were not really getting access to uh, an audience. These were mostly the writers associated with the Vietnam veterans against the war, um, who the United States did their best to forget. Um, I got sick of that. Uh, the, the war in Vietnam, the one thing you can say about it is that the, the cause betrayed everybody who got involved in it. It really doesn't matter what your political orientation is or what people thought they were trying to do. 
Just everyone who was involved with it got burned. And it's just a very sad story. And I thought it would be a lot more fun <laughs> to learn Vietnamese and to move on from a war to a whole country. And it turned out to be a good idea. I learned Vietnamese when I was 31. Uh, I was recruited by a, a man I'd made friends with, a great Vietnamese-American intellectual named Wing Chang Tom, who died in November, um, to take over a research project, he, a publication project at Yale University called Vietnam Forum. Uh, in the course of raising money for that, um, I ran across the Ford Foundation who asked me if I would go work in Vietnam for a couple of years as, as a consultant to publishers there. And while I was working there, I was the host of another great Vietnamese intellectual man named uh, Hung Ngoc, who during the war uh, did what I'm trying to do now. He and his, his boss, a man named Vien, Wittenkok Vien, um, it's an astonishing story. Um, under the American bombardment, they were running around translating Vietnamese literature uh, into English um, and publishing it to the world for much the same reason that I want to. Um, it was an expression of, uh, of what they were trying to do, of their, of their, of their love of their country. Now I, I'm I'm looking you know through your through your website and mm -hmm. trying to familiarize myself with uh, with the works that are there mm -hmm. and and I, I I'm reading um, an interview with uh, Win Kwok Chang yeah Win Kwok Chang Chang okay and 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 it's just uh, wonderful just uh -huh. wonderful stuff um, he's he's a surreal a surrealist yeah um, and, and absurdist and he has managed um, I, I believe it's, he was born in in the late fifties. So, so he came of age around the same time, I guess, mm -hmm. as, as as you and I. Mm -hmm. So, so experienced the war as a person of the same age as right. you and I, although from a obviously from a completely right. um, different different perspective. And I just want to read something that I that I came that I came upon um, on on the site where he's talking about um, both um, both surrealism and socialist realism, which are two literary mm -hmm. movements in in conflict with each other in mm -hmm. in Vietnam, and and the mistakes that they they both have made. And he says, the misjudgment that socialist realism brought was that it played a role in the mass murder of talent by taking away consciousness and opportunity. But the misjudgment of allowing surrealist poetry to enter Vietnam was a lucky opportunity for those talents still latent. How is it possible to modernize the plastic tail of the pig with the head of a locomotive? <laughs> you know, I, I, some, I, and, and I, I don't know what's been gained or lost in translation. Nothing. From from that, um, <laughs> you know, cause, because you, you you are familiar with that utterance in in its in its original in its original tongue. But what a beautiful sentence, and what a yeah. what a great way of of looking at the world. The the we, we were talking before the government, the current government of Vietnam, uh, is a monopoly publisher in, right. in that country, and and this man is not being published in right. his country. Is that what's going on right now? Yes, that's right. Uh, it's um. It's not like the old days when they would have simply shot him or, or locked him up for 15 or 25 years. Uh, he's simply denied uh, access to a mass audience. Um, he is also, he's, uh, so he can't publish through the big publishers. Um, and he also cannot simply, you know, run off some books and sell them at his readings. That, that's, that is a non-trivial offense in Vietnam. It is um, comparable to uh, dealing crack, okay? It's, it's not something the government takes it all lightheartedly. There's a very brave man who uh, 
shows his courage in simply adhering to his uh, his creativity. Uh, it, it's difficult to explain the tradition of dissent in Vietnam because it doesn't map onto our ideas, say, about the Soviet Union very easily. For one thing, the, surreal, the French surrealists were all um, members of the French Communist Party. Um, so, so they're the, kind of in the pantheon. Right, exactly. Right? And Ho Chi Minh was actually a founder, not just the founder of the Vietnamese Communist Party, but he was a very important founder of the French Socialist Party, who were communists. And so there's this strong strain and appreciation of surrealism throughout um, the, uh, uh, the hardcore Stalinist communist literary intellectuals that... Um, in, in a way, I suppose it makes them repress the Vietnamese surrealists all the more. The, one, the great Vietnamese literary dissident movement was called, uh, um, I'll call it the Hundred Flowers Movement in 1956, and it was led by a surrealist who had joined the Viet Minh, that was the, Viet, uh, the, the Vietnamese Revolutionary Army against the French, um, and... But, and like many such people, after the victory against the French, he said, well, we beat the French. We were fighting for freedom and independence. Um, <laughs> now, now what? <laughs> right. right. And those people were very, very severely treated. Um, Chang actually had very little knowledge of them growing up because he was in, in Saigon, which was really cut off from, uh, it's an irony of history, is that the people fighting for freedom in Saigon were... Uh, uh, were cut off from the dis, dis, dissidents in Hanoi. Um, he, it's, a, it's a marvelous story. He actually gained his literary education, as he says, from trash, from garbage, because after the fall of Saigon in 1875, a lot of people thought it was going to be like Phnom Penh, that the, 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 the communists were going to be going around shooting everybody who wore glasses or didn't you know, work in the fields. Um, that absolutely never happened. But everybody threw their books out. And so... Um, <laughs> Especially their, their subversive Western right, right, books. Right, right, right. And so uh, you could buy uh, in flea markets um, all this stuff. And that's actually where the current generation of uh, Vietnamese writers, including I, those I have from... This, I have this picture of, oh, right. of, of the streets near Cooper Union. Right. Um, in, oh, low, yeah. in Lower Manhattan, in my head. With, sure, with if blankets. the Ku Klux Klan was coming and right. everybody had to throw out their John Hope Franklin texts, and, right. <laughs> you right. know, that's, right. Right. Um, that's what it was like. I, I, I wanted to, I, I want to ask, and this, this just came to me. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about this um, earlier. Has anybody done any research into whether um, this surrealist tendency, this absurdist tendency that was part of the uh, of, of the revolutionary movement, uh -huh. um, had any impact in the ability of the Vietnamese to to fight against two very powerful Western nations and never give up, and you know never to to succumb to you know a, a essentially overwhelming firepower. Um, is, is is there anybody you know looking at at that as a as a scholarly as a scholarly thesis at this point? Well, there's a yin and there's a yang. Um, we can say that actually in the north. Um, that's probably not the case, okay? Because um, uh, a little more Stalinist organization up oh, in, in the, north. The, the mm -hmm. organization of society uh, is pro probably it may be the most extreme that was seen throughout the communist world. Um, uh, it, 
dur- during the w- fighting against the French, everybody kept in line. Nobody was doing anything strange. And then after this brief flowering in 1956, everybody who tried to step out of line was very vigorously shut down. Ah. One of the poets we published was, um, he spent his life basically about 30 years um, in jail. Uh, he's incorrigible, but the, his original offense was simply making up poems orally to pass around the streets of Haiphong. Um, so, um, uh, I mean, I want to say yes. There's something that's that's very um, um, visceral. Um, there's there's an ancient tradition of Vietnamese poetry um, that John Balaban over here at State translates very well. Uh, the Kazao, which are poems by mostly by peasant women, and they're very kind of odd, and you could almost say they're surrealist. And there is that sort of very visceral, very human element in, in Vietnamese culture, but uh, in fact, in the North, during the fight against France and the United States, uh, the Yang oppressive side was really in charge. Okay. Well, thank, yeah. thanks for thanks for enlightening me uh, um, as as to that. We're um we're 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 approaching the end of our no. show already, which is really a shame because I have okay. I have I have a number a number of questions that I that I want to ask. Very very briefly, um, talk about the range of people who you do have published on the site. I know that that one of the the women um, who you publish is an, an immigrant who lives in the United mm-hmm. States and writes about her experience. Mm-hmm. But uh, talk about about um, some of the other people. Well, we just where, where have, do they where do they live? We who just are have they? five authors now up, and uh, Witten Kwok um, Chang we've talked about, and he's still in Saigon, um, the surrealist. Um, um, Chan Diu Hang is the woman um, you just just mentioned. She's of a very interesting generation. Uh, pe- again, people just our age, Barry who were just coming of age as authors and winning prizes in Saigon in 1975, and then um, whoops, had to move to the United States. People who are 10 years older than them often established professional literary careers, but the people who were just our age really had to go work, get whatever job, and, and support their families. Um, Nyat Ling um, was one of the first people we published. He's known as the father of uh, modern Vietnamese literature, which is a, an exaggeration, as that statement always is about any modern literature. But he uh, he was one of the first people to write uh, modern poetry and modern short stories and modern novels. He was also a, an author. I actually wrote my dissertation about and, him. And, he, and is is he does he have difficulty being published in Vietnam? Then I, I assume that everybody he was. It's one of these funny stories. I mean, he was active in the twenties, and he actually uh, killed himself um, about the same time the monks burnt themselves. Uh, he killed mid nineteen sixties. He took uh, nineteen sixty three. He took yeah. uh, poison in scotch. Um, it attracted less photography, but it was just as important as as, as the monks. Uh, it was a pro- protest against the Ngodingziem government. Um, he said, you know, actually, he said, it's so complicated talking about Vietnamese history. He was he was uh, protesting against our client Ziem, but he was saying to Ziem, you be, you are you are cooperating much too much with the Americans, and that's going to make you lose to the communists, who I hate. Uh, and so he killed himself. But he, uh, yes, he was banned. Uh, as as a petty bourgeois reactionary in Vietnam until about 10 years ago when he was hailed as a great founder of the national literature and they've retranslated everything and they're writing theses about him. It's great. Um, Tien, I told you about the political prisoner. I'll see him uh, on May 2nd up in New Haven at the uh, 
memorial service of my, for my friend Tom, who I wrote about. Tom probably saved this man's life by translating poetry that he smuggled out of Vietnam when he was in jail. And then there's Li Lan, who is uh, just different. She's, um, she's, again, she's about our age. She's in Vietnam. She's in Saigon right now. Uh, and she is famous in Vietnam as the translator of Harry Potter. Um, which, which is going to yeah. lead in so perfectly right. to, to, my, to my anecdote. Okay. Um, very, very briefly, uh, a brand new Vietnamese restaurant has opened in Durham. Yeah. It's called Saigon. It's located on uh, Roxborough Street. And I was yeah. there on Saturday for their grand opening. Uh -huh. And it was a family affair. Yeah. Um, all of the owners, siblings, and oh. all of their children wow. were in the restaurant. There must have been 20 to 25 sure. kids between the ages of, of, say, 4 or 3 and 11 or 12. Uh -huh. And the 11-year-old girl was doing her best to uh, make sure that we had water and, and, and that our silverware was delivered and such. And it turns out the people who we were uh, dining with um, had been to Vietnam uh -huh. in, um, in November, I believe, mm -hmm. for, for 30 days. And they were talking to this 11-year-old girl about, uh, about Hanoi. Mm -hmm. We were talking about Hanoi, and she had been to Hanoi um, a couple of years ago for the summer uh, after third grade. Hmm. And her, her best memory of Hanoi, what she said was, they have the best water park there. Haven't been yet. And for someone who grew up in the 60s, uh -huh. for, you know, for whom Vietnam is this incredibly complex uh -huh. issue, if you had said to me in 1970, <laughs> you know, Barry, one day you're going to be talking to an 11-year-old girl. And she is going to tell you that Hanoi was great because it had this fabulous water park. I just would have said there is no way that that's going to happen. Um, well, it's wonderful. Dan, Dan Duffy, thank yeah. you so much for, uh, for being our guest. Uh, the uh -huh. website is vietnamlit.org. I'm Barry Reagan. You've been listening to Shooting the Bull on WXDU Durham. And uh, I'm Kevin Davis. I uh, want to add my thanks to, uh, to Dan for coming in and to everyone for uh, listening to us tonight here on the radio. We will be uh, back with you next week, or I should say Barry will. Uh, I will be uh, out of town, but uh, we'll see you back here myself in two weeks. Take care.